Woi woi, woi woi, woi woi. Then it then go on the radio again. Yo, if you wanna smoke free weed, go board yourself. You need to go plant a seed. Go board yourself, make your knowledge increase. Go board yourself, go board yourself. All right, welcome you guys to episode number 29 of Grow Bud Yourself. We have a great show for you guys today. We have solventless hash maker Nika T as our guest, uh, revealing tons of hash making secrets. We have our strain of the fortnight. I'll be talking about pheno hunting, grow Q&A, and much more. So stick around for Grow Bud Yourself, brought to you by Excelsior Extracts. All right, welcome back. And as always, thank you to DJ Jacques and Winstrong for the tune. We have a great show in store for you guys today. How you feeling, Mike? I'm feeling good. Yeah, it was really nice to to, to speak with Nick T, and you guys are going to get to hear from him later. Um, and then, you know, wonderful cultivation segment. So really, can't you can't say anything bad about this episode, except maybe, you know, the beginning part. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, what's been in the news lately? Have you guys seen this? Have you guys read about this? <laughs> well, the thing that popped out to me, actually, since you mentioned the news so organically like that, is that Israel uh, apparently is going to legalize, um, regulate, and, and sell cannabis within the next nine months. Wow. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's good. Uh, definitely a region that could use more cannabis and legal cannabis for sure. I hope it spreads uh, throughout the whole area. Yeah, peace in the Middle East through cannabis? Yeah, I mean, you got to think about, like, the, so many of those areas are hash-producing regions that, you know, have been, you know, thrown into warfare and, and turmoil. And meanwhile, they have this amazing ability to produce uh, a great product, and they've been doing it for thousands of years. I mean, we're talking about Lebanon, um, Egypt, all, all of those areas um, our hash production areas. I'm talking about Morocco, all these amazing places, Afghanistan. I mean, that's further away, obviously, but um, it does seem strange that, like, you know, these hash producing areas have have such uh, such turmoil. Yeah, um, but we should also just mention Israel has a bit of a history with cannabis. Of course, uh, Dr. Meshulam uh, discovered THC, and Israel has has really worked hard on uh, the medical cannabis side of things for years now. So it's great to hear them taking this next step. Yeah. And I think uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome is one of the things Mm. that they're very, uh, you know, they're researching a lot about. And I guess there's a lot of that in the region. So, um, you know, that's good. That's good news for people in in that area. So we applaud Israel. We like that the cannabis legalization fever is spreading let's hope it just continues to spread i mean cannabis, cannabis and hash and science and you know people studying what these amazing plant-based compounds can do for humanity and for the earth and for the plants and for the balance let's restore the balance here yeah and where do you um now this is not really related to that but where do you land on some of the stuff that oregon did on election day when it comes to a uh, sort of a decriminalization of all drugs. I think it's great. You know, I mean, I think it's obviously that's, you know, that's what needs to happen, you know, and because here's the thing, you know, I, I, as someone who's very opposed to, you know, the use of hard drugs, uh, I, it, it's not a criminal issue. It's a medical issue. Addiction is a medical issue and going to jail isn't something that solves that. I mean, in the short term, sure, you can't get drugs, but if sure, you can get drugs in jail if you want. But the, the point is, it's not a criminal issue. It's not something that the police should be dealing with. We, this is something that counselors and rehab and we, you know, we just need, we need to put those resources into a better place so that, you know, rather than just a cycle of just pulling people off the street and throwing them into jail and then they get out and then they get back on, you know, whatever it is and it's illegal and then it gets found on them and then they go back. It, it's just a never ending cycle. And what the only way to break the cycle is to treat addiction like a disease rather than a crime, you know, and 
I think that's the way to go. And I think plant-based medicines and including, you know, psychedelics are going to go a long way to help with that. I think you, we've seen the results of, you know, MDMA, of ayahuasca, of DMT, of LSD, of all these things have profound effects on people's psyche and can help them reset their minds so that whether they're addicted to cigarettes or, or alcohol or hard drugs or whatever it might be, even food or, you know, sugar, people are able to break that cycle by using psychedelics. And I think we should put our resources into studying how to break that cycle more than just how to criminalize people who fall into those traps. And, uh, you know, it, to me, it just makes perfect sense. If you look at a place like Portugal, um, it used to be just overrun with like, you know, people that were addicts on the street. And, and now those people have access to the, the, the drugs they need and they either wean themselves off or they stay on. But either way, they remain productive citizens. Some of them, maybe they don't, but Portugal has benefited from decriminalizing small amounts of, of drug of all drugs. And I think we would benefit from it too. Um, it's not a cause I'm going to go and, and, and march for, or, you know, uh, attend the cups that they might have or whatever, but that sounds interesting, <laughs> but it is mm. something that I believe. And I think it's a step in the right direction. And I think criminalizing ad addicts is, uh, pretty ridiculous. And, you know, criminalizing drug dealers is ridiculous i mean these are just these are pawns in a in a game it's a vicious cycle and it only makes things worse for everyone and that's when you end up with all these just these tragedies and just you know that's how we have more than two million people in jail you know it's just it's too much and we need to find we need to explore other avenues and i think decriminalizing all drugs is definitely a step in the right direction so i don't think it's too far i don't think it's too much i don't think there's going to be um, you know, any kind of uh, negative uh, aspects to it. I think people will be surprised. Yeah, enforcing um, drug laws in this country has is, is not been a successful endeavor, really, any way you look at it, unless you're talking about the people that have gotten rich from the prison industrial complex. But other than that, it's just been beating your head against a wall, and it is time for a new approach. So good for Oregon for trying something uh, different. Absolutely. All right, so... Uh, that's that, but we have a really great interview with, with Nika T, and, um, you know, I'm not sure if you remember this, but a few years back, um, people thought that we looked very similar. <laughs> that's so, right. Yeah, in 2012 at the Denver Mart, uh, he had, I think it was that point at the Denver Mart, but he was DJing one of our cannabis cups, and I was kind of running the stage, and the person from the Denver Mart during soundcheck, it was just destroying his mind he couldn't figure it out because i was over here with him doing that and nicotine was on stage at the uh, turntables and he didn't know what was going on now i never really thought we looked that much alike but at that point in time apparently we did that is funny <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's no. great but for people who may not know um much about nicotine why don't you uh, why don't you let them know what they can expect with this interview yes well you know he's a longtime uh, cannabis visionary um, and hashish processor who basically uh, pioneered a lot of amazing way new ways um, to improve upon solventless extraction so you know he didn't invent solventless extraction or anything like that but um, basically found ways to improve on it and uh, that improvement has has been substantial and the, the the whole world of solventless extraction and by solventless extraction i mean not using uh solvents so no no butane no hexane no um carbon dioxide co2 nothing uh, that needs to be purged right just uh water i mean people call water you know the 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 ultimate solvent or whatever the universal solvent but you know s certainly water is nothing like butane or, or hexane or the or propane or those type of things so um just someone who's uh you know participated in cannabis cups by winning cannabis cups uh also you know when he wasn't winning cannabis cups he was helping us judge cannabis cups uh performing music reggae uh djing at the cups and so really a uh 
uh, a jack of all trades, uh, and with hash being obviously the uh, the trade that uh, that you know is closest to my heart. So, uh, without further ado, or after these messages, uh, we will be back with nicotine from Essential Extracts. Hey, you guys, this episode is brought to you by Excelsior Extracts and their incredible THC-infused relief rub. Uh, And now this stuff really works. And uh, I know it works because it's made by our friend Outcast, and she needs very, very strong topicals. Uh, So the relief rub is the strongest topical I've ever tried. Check them out on Instagram at Excelsior Extracts, all one word. Uh, DM them for info on the relief rub if you're interested and uh, give them a follow. Uh, They're great people and they grow great cannabis and make great products. So thank you to Excelsior Extracts. Now back to the show. All right, we are back and we have a very special treat for you guys. A wonderful guest, a great friend, uh, Mr. Nick T, Nick Tannum, hash maker extraordinaire. Welcome, Nick. Yo, give thanks for having me, y'all. It's great to see your faces. <laughs> Absolutely, thank you. Uh, so yeah, we've uh, you know we've been friends for for a long time and and you know been in the industry for a long time. But I want to take people back um, to a young a young Nick T. Uh, you grew up in the Bay Area, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I grew up in the Bay Area. Um, about half my life spent in the Bay Area, and uh, was really just blessed to have cannabis so prevalent, you know, so widespread up there in Northern California. Um, it was really just part of my upbringing in reality. Yeah. So, how, you know, how did you get interested early on? I mean, were you were you from a, a family that partook, or, or was it something that you came to? Uh, you know, pretty early? So my family definitely, um, parts of my family partake, um, some for ailments, you know, cancer and other things of that nature. Um, but I think that I probably started smoking weed quite a bit before I realized that my parents smoked weed or that they had even, you know, even knew about it or anything. Um, I was young, I was 12, 13 years old. And, uh, I had, um, a German foreign exchange student staying with us who was like 12, 13. And, uh, in Europe, generally speaking, they start smoking quite a bit earlier than us in the United States, whether it's tobacco or cannabis or a blend of both. But, um, he actually, we were out on a lake on a raft and he hands me a cigarette and he's smoking a cigarette. He hands it to me and I hit it and I cough like crazy and I throw the cigarette into the lake. And I was like, Oh, that was nasty. And he pulls something else out of his cigarette pack. He's like, don't throw this one away. I brought this all the way, you know, from home. And uh, I tried it and I was like, whoa, that's pleasant. And uh, I feel like I was pretty hooked to specifically spliffs uh, from that time on. Um, But as I mentioned, you know, cannabis was really prevalent in Northern California. I did have some family members that were just barely into the trade. I had uh, an uncle. I call him an uncle. Um that had a property up in Mendocino, California. And I would up, I would go up there to visit him and uh, bring back trim, really. And that's kind of how it started. I was like 15 years old going up to Humboldt and Mendo and finding trim for my uncle's property. But then as I was driving down Highway 101 and a few of the other spots up there in the cuts, back then trim was not highly sought after. A lot of these old school farmers would literally just put their bags of all their waste material, their trim in black bags on the side of the road because they didn't want it on their property. Um, It was more, you know, risk. It was more weight on their property. So they would literally just put it on the side of the road. So I had this, this friend of mine, um, Armando actually, who kind of put me onto this little trick where we'd go pick up trim from my uncle's farm, but then we'd start driving down other random roads and just pick up random black bags on the side of the road. I kid you not, this is how it was as a little teenager and, and wash it. And oftentimes it was moldy. The, you know, the hash was really, really dark black, smelled mildewy, you know? Um, but that's actually what really pushed me to want to learn more and create a higher quality product. 
Um, cause I had this feeling that it wasn't the healthiest thing for me to consume. I was smoking like a half ounce of bubble hash a day and it was getting to my throat. Um, I had some serious throat issues actually. Um, cause I think there was a, you know, a time where I was like 10 years in a row with just hash and tobacco spliffs. Um, and it was that old school style hash and I wanted to change that up right around that time. You know, when I started getting into my twenties, BHO, butane hash oil, started popping up on the scene. I mean, I remember on the back of high times, those honeybee extractors, those plastic things for blasting BHO. And I think I grabbed one of those in like the late 90s and started blasting BHO. And I was like, you know what? There's something better. I, ha- I want to make this naturally, but I want to make it comparatively. I wanted to find that gold color and that viscous or non-viscous consistency, a real oily consistency. Yeah, and uh, eventually you ended up moving to Colorado. As, uh, it was now that was for college. Yeah, you know, eventually or originally, sorry, I moved to Colorado for college in two thousand one. Um, I went to CU Boulder, um, and I did graduate from CU Boulder. It might have been like six, seven years later, but I did. Um, I did graduate, um, but then I actually I had a child. Uh, my son Solomon's twelve years old now. Um, and this was right around that time. I actually moved to Portland, Oregon from Colorado and, uh, to raise my child. It was really hard in Portland, Oregon, to be honest in 2007 is when I moved to Portland, Oregon. And it was like second to, I think Michigan, Detroit, Michigan in impoverished educated individuals. It was a really, really tough place to live at that time in 2007. Um, and, uh, raising a child. So, uh, I got this phone call. Uh, to go up to Vail, Colorado and help a friend open up one of the first dispensaries in Colorado while I was living in Oregon. I'm like, you know what? I got to do this for me, for my kid, for the family. There was not a lot of money in Portland. This seemed like a money-making opportunity and something that can continue my passion for the cannabis plant. So I went up there to Vail, Colorado, and I ended up managing the dispensary, kind of implementing a lot of things that I had experienced in California. Because previous to this, in like 2004, I was working with Vapor Room and some of those first San Francisco dispensaries. And back then, in 215 days, I could go make hash at my mom's house or my buddy Jay's house and go sell it to the dispensaries. So I learned a lot with like the security measures. And I was also working with True School and doing a lot of street promo at that time. And the same people that were the security guards at Vapor Room were the same security guards at Club Six. And I know you know Club Six because we've skateboarded it in there together. Um, but, uh, you know, so I, I got along with the security guards. You know, we started parring every night in the clubs and then also at the dispensary. And I'm like starting to learn, you know, about the marketing of dispensaries, the security of dispensaries, and uh, really brought a lot of that knowledge because Colorado hadn't really seen dispensaries yet. Brought a lot of that knowledge to Colorado. Helped my buddy Brian start up one of the first dispensaries in Colorado, Treeline Premier Dispensary. I had my best friends working with me there. Um, in fact, Spinks and Bird managed the shop before I even got there, who are two of my best college friends. So it was just a beautiful situation to come back to Colorado. And they put me up in a nice house and at the base of the mountain so I could go snowboarding. Unfortunately, there was so much work to do at that dispensary just starting it off that I really didn't get to ride a lot at all. Um, but yeah, I started at the dispensary in, in Vail, Colorado. Vail, Colorado was just small, small town vibes. And I'm a DJ that loves to talk to people and socialize. So eventually, I kind of trickled down the hill into Denver and started working with a company called Pink House. Um, and partnered up with Pink House. Eventually, Pink House had 12 or 13 licenses throughout the state of Colorado, from cultivation to retail to processing. And, uh, you know, that went really well for quite a while. Um, Things always change in this industry, and people change. And that was one of those situations that I had to move on from. But I've just been blessed to have this motivation to just kind of keep pushing this envelope and keep pushing the boundaries of what I thought was possible. Um, and just blessed to still be here. I still own my company, Essential Extracts, 100%. I have zero partners. I brought in no money and we have zero company debt. So I'm pretty blessed right now. Yeah. You mentioned uh, your company, Essential Extracts. It's actually the first licensed non-solvent extraction facility in the United States. Is that correct? 
Yeah, yeah. Um, I've been touting that one for a while. Unfortunately, talking about it publicly gets the IRS up my ass. And so that's been happening for the last 20 years. But, you know, it's out there. <laughs> and that's something that I want to talk about because I'm proud of. Um, we were the first company to contact the Department of Revenue, to contact the IRS and be like, hey, I want to pay taxes on hashish, not uh, DBA. I don't want to pay taxes on some side you know, hustle. I want to pay taxes on the products I'm selling. And so um, we started moving through that, uh, that avenue. You know, California at that time in 2010, 2009, 2010, they would not let me operate like that. You know, it was still hush hush. 215 was really a gray area in reality. And I know that there are a lot of like us old school legacy farmers and, and legacy brands that miss 215, but at the same time, it didn't provide a lot of protection for us. Um, and that's why I really moved out to Colorado because I was told by federal agents in California that I should go back to Colorado because that's where I'll be safe. That's where I can sleep at night. And that's what I did. Yeah. Wow. Um, now you ended up winning, uh, you know, more than a dozen, I think more than 15 cannabis cups, uh, over that time and a bunch of other awards, um, in a category that has changed. I mean, as a cannabis cup judge, uh, you know, as someone who's judged, I, I think more cannabis cups than anybody, uh, myself, uh, I've, that's the category I've seen change the most, um, that non-solvent category. I mean, when it started, uh, you know, it was still like what you described those black, you know, chunks of, ice water, you know, what we just called bubble hash, you know what I mean? Or, or ice, ice wax, you know, and it was dark. Uh, it still maintained, it still had a lot of moisture. I used to call it sizzle hash because, uh, cause you know, it just had, it still had moisture in it. Sometimes you cracked it open. It was moldy. Um, and what happened over time is that the technique developed to a point where the solventless extractions are, uh, you know, superior in many ways to the ones using solvents. And um, tell me a little bit about your part in that journey. What What are some of the things that that allowed it to change from those like yeah. wet, wet, dark balls of 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 wax to where we're at now? Yeah, it's really been a crazy journey. And literally today, even today, things are changing every single day. We're learning more every day in this non-solvent space. I mean. When we were making bubble hash in a hot barn in Mendocino, we didn't even think this was possible. You know, we didn't think we could be separating THCA, you know, on a on a real scientific level mechanically um, back then. And so, a lot of changes have happened. Um, I think a lot of, but all right, let's back up. So, I learned originally how to make water hash from Mila. And, and even before that, you know, I was watching farmers, my uncle and people like that up in Mendo do their little thing. But it wasn't until I traveled to Amsterdam in the early 2000s and learned a lot of oral tradition from Mila, the hash queen, that really started changing my tech. She taught me about the rinsing tech. And before that, like, yeah, I was making some stuff and 75% out of the time or 70% of the time it would bubble. But when I learned that rinsing tech, everything I was bringing down from the hill was bubbling. 95% of it I could get to bubble due to that rinsing tech. From there, you know, BHO started coming into play um, in the early 2000s to mid 2000s is really when it started hyping up. And uh, for me anyways, I think for a lot of people, it really didn't come into play until like 2012. Um, but I was creating this gold honey looking consistency with the BHO. And I'm like, I really want to make that without BHO. I want to make that color and that consistency. And so we started controlling variables. And that's something that I preached from day one. I think I did a John Doe radio show back in 2010, where I talked about controlling variables and working in a walk-in cooler or a walk-in freezer. I've, I've been preaching that for, I don't know, over 15 years now, it feels like. Um, because I learned that if I could keep my material and my water cold, I wasn't leaching a lot of that plant material. So a lot of those green and darker colors weren't coming through as much. Um, so the temperature and humidity of your environment was key then and still now um, as we move forward. And as we see in the industry, there's a lot of the new companies coming on board that have learned from me that are building out massive facilities 
with these walking coolers and all this temperature and humidity control, full separated HVAC systems from their kitchen to their washroom, et cetera. Um, and it's really cool to see because it's something that I've been talking about from day one. And so controlling some of those temperature and humidity variables, utilizing clean RO water and clean RO ice has been a, a huge factor. Um, and then really just recently in the last five to 10 years, I think I wrote an article about it maybe five, six years ago, was cultivar specific hash. Because now we're realizing that some of these strains, I always use Blue Dream as an example, don't yield anything in water hash, super, super minute yields compared to hydrocarbon. But then something like Gorilla Glue, number four, or chem cuts um, and sour diesel cuts and the white crosses and things like that, we're seeing big, big yields comparatively, like eight times, 10 times the amount of yield as the Blue Dream. Um, so something that we've been really focusing on more specifically recently is, is uh, cultivars, you know, picking the right strain that's going to do work for you, that's going to have the right color, the right consistency, the terpene profile, the cannabinoid profile, and the yield. Because if you're seeing less than 1% yields and you're running things like Blue Dream, you're going to be losing for the farmer, you're going to be losing for yourself, and it's just not a viable situation. So we learned uh, over the last decade that cultivars are very important and finding those specific cultivars that wash. And that all has to do with the trichome structure, the amount of oil to wax ratio, the thickness of that waxy cuticle on the outside of the trichome head, the length of the trichome, whether it's got a big bulbous head and a small stalk or a longer stalk and a smaller head. You know, there's a lot of variables there that we look for. Yeah, and so it's very strain specific. Uh, and even the micron sizes that you would need uh, would be different for different for different strains and different sized glandular trichome heads, right? Definitely, definitely, definitely. Now, what is freeze-dried solventless? So freeze dryers have been around for a long time, but just in the last five years or so, we brought them into the extraction world. Um, I got a big up man like Fletcher from Archive Seed Bank. I think he was the first person I actually saw on a very small level try putting hash into a freeze dryer. And I think the first time he turned it on, he put it on just the mode that it comes out of the factory. And so it burned the hash. I think it was at 150 degrees or 200 degrees and it almost decarbed that hash while it was drying it. And since then, and bringing eight of these into my commercial facility in Colorado, we've really dialed them in. I'm using shelf temps no higher than 35 degrees Fahrenheit. That gives me just a little above freezing level to actually sublimate the water out without going too high as to burn the terpenes off. Um, so we were, I think, one of the first companies to really bring freeze dryers into a commercial level. But like I said, big up Fletch from Archive Seabank. I'm pretty sure he was the first person I actually saw using one. Um, and from there, once we were using them commercially, I mean, we bought eight of them. Uh, from Harvest Right, who was used to selling them to fruit dryers and stuff like that. They were like, you're using them for what? I'm like, don't worry about it. But then now they've caught on. Now they're making freeze dryers specific to hash. They call them the pharmaceutical freeze dryers. Before they had a home freeze dryer and a scientific. And now they have a pharmaceutical, which really is for hash. <laughs> Amazing. So, and once you, once you have that freeze dried uh, solventless, um, you're also pressing that into rosin as well, right? Yeah. And the freeze dryer has allowed us to provide a lot more stability, removing 100% of the moisture rather than leaving any in that could cause any mold and microbial issues. So bringing the freeze dryers into the commercial industry and specifically writing SOPs surrounding around them has really given us the advantage of mitigating mold and microbial. So it's helped us with the health department. It's helped us with the MED, a lot of the regulatory agencies Originally, we're concerned with water hash uh, causing mold and microbial issues. And bringing these freeze dryers into the industry has really enabled us to mitigate those chances for mold and microbial. You're also getting a higher terpene concentration because if you can remove 100% of the water, it's drying more properly. You know, you're not getting a lot of that chlorophyll smell or that mold or mildew type of smell from trapping moisture. So we're seeing terpene increases. Um, 
yeah, the free starters have just been amazing for us. So we basically wash our hash either by hand or with an agitator. It goes into the freeze dryer for anywhere from 15 to 36 hours. I'm gonna that's a huge range. I generally stay around the freeze for four or five hours and freeze dry, actually pulling vacuum for about 19 hours. Um, and once that cycle's done, you've got beautiful granulated heads that have zero moisture content. You can then freeze those and store them for as long as you want until you want to press them. You can hand press them like Frenchie does into temple balls from that freeze dryer. And you can also uh, put them into rosin bags and press them into beautiful rosin. And rosin is now coming in all different consistencies and colors and technologies behind it. You know, there's the fresh press. There's this jar tech, which has a number of different names that it's associated with. But some of the coolest things that have been coming into uh, the present and what we've been learning in the last like six months to a year is stabilization, um, you know, via some of these technologies. Because I think one of the things that water hash and rosin was lacking for a long time, even compared to BHO, was shelf stability. And so now that we're utilizing some of the same pressure technology that the hydrocarbon side of the world is using for BHO, for creating diamonds and things of that nature. We've taken that to the solventless world and we're creating shelf stability. I mean, I've had rosin sitting out and driving in my car at 100, 120 degrees and it hasn't changed. So that's really, really cool to see uh, what the, you know, what some of my peers have uh, come up with. You know, I feel like I helped push that envelope and, make people realize like, Hey, you know, you can make something that looks like BHO without any chemical solvents. And now people are pushing that envelope even further than I thought was possible. Yeah. And I think the important thing for people to understand, um, is you're not going through all, all of this, you know, trouble, uh, for nothing. And as someone who's tried, um, the product, it, you know, the, this, the rosin solventless rosin dabs are as good, if not better than any sort of solvent, extract dabs and as you said there's no chemical solvents used no hydrocarbons not even co2 safe for the producer safe for the consumer right Um, and now you're saying even shelf stay you know shelf stable uh which was really kind of like the final factor as far as you know stability goes and i think think that's very interesting and i think you know it's just really amazing to see all the changes now where do you see sort of the future of solventless uh, you know, as, as we move forward every day, it's changing. Um, just to touch on what you just said. I mean, I have some of the most famous butane brands contacting me recently. I mean, I've sold big, um, rosin and solventless equipment to a lot of large butane companies recently that have been like, yo, all I smoke is rosin now. So we might as well start making it. And it's a trip because, you know, my whole goal has been to mimic them for the last 10 years. Um, And, uh, I mean, I had BHO makers tell me that, you know, this would never go water hash would never fucking take out BHO. And now we're seeing wholesale prices, you know, on BHO of like as low as 10 to $15 a gram. Whereas wholesale on, on high end, you know, on rosin is like 30, 40, um, you know, retailing for over a hundred. Whereas I think BHO has dropped down quite a bit lower than a hundred, even lower than 50, um, it's it's been a crazy, and this has just happened the last couple of years. There's a switch happening for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think you know the consumers are getting educated as well. You know what I mean, and and they're you know willing to pay a, maybe a little bit extra to know that uh, nothing had to be purged out of you know out of their uh, product, and that it's clean, and that it's really the essence of the cannabis flower. I mean, it's the essential oil, uh, basically you know, carefully removed. And that that's always been the goal of every hash maker, I think. And I think uh, it's really amazing how, how much, you know, influence you've had on that and your peers. And, you know, it really is incredible to see. So you think, you know, in the future that that gap will, will shrink down. You think that, um, you know, the cost of production and everything is really taken over. You know, when I'm getting phone calls, where large BHO processors are purchasing over $100,000 in solventless equipment. I mean, yeah, I think that the initial cost to get into a solventless lab and build out a solventless lab 
can be um, a little bit more um, or a little bit less money than building out a full hydrocarbon C1D1 lab. Um, so a lot of people are jumping on that, but really, you know, just the quality, the quality is there. Um, I mean, I think once solventless figures out CRC, it's game over. So that might be the next step is, uh, color remediation on solventless products, finding a way to not use any ethanol or any other chemical solvents to lighten the color. Cause you know, it, it's tough to say this, um, you know, because I believe in broad spectrum, and to me, color really doesn't matter at all. I'll smoke, you know, darker colored hash if it tastes like Skittles or lemon tree, you know, because a lot of those strains produce a little bit darker hash, you know, like the lemon tree produces a little darker hash. That lemonine, limonene terpene just oxidizes a little bit. I think it's because it eats through. It's such a strong terpene that it eats through some of that uh, waxy cuticle and might oxidize the product a little bit. Um, so color really doesn't mean a lot to me, but it does mean a lot to the consumer that's looking at 500 different samples of extracts on the shelf, deciding what to do, you know, what to purchase. Um, so I think that that could be uh, a possibility for the future of solventless. But really, you know, now that we've found a way to separate THCA via heat and pressure in the solventless world via mechanical separations... And now I'm even playing with some CBN and CBG, and I've noticed that CBG has a lot lower of a boiling point than even C CBD or THC. Um, and so now I'm playing with separating some of those cannabinoids. And so I think some of the future is going to be formulations and finding which specific cannabinoids matched with which specific terpenes are going to help certain people feel a certain way or help an ailment. You know, I think there's a lot of possibilities in that realm as well. Now, like I said, and like I prefaced, I believe in broad spectrum. Some people, um, you know, call it the synergistic effect or the entourage effect. I think a lot of the reason people talk about the entourage effect is because we don't know exactly which cannabinoids are fitting with which terpenes to give you a certain effect. Um, and so they call it the entourage effect because if you mash in as many of those cannabinoids, as many of those terpenes as you can, you're going to get as many effects as you, you know, uh, can get into there. But I think as we dial it in um, and really start separating the cannabinoids and finding synergistic benefits with the uh, cannabinoids and the terpenes, um, that's going to be some cool future studies. Excellent. Um now you also do consulting as well. I mean, you mentioned a little bit. Um, now, how 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 would people uh, get in contact with you, website wise or social media wise? I'm sure there's a lot of uh, listeners that want to see uh, what we're talking about as well. And you've got a whole gallery of uh, photographs of solventless, uh, beautiful, amazing hash. So let people know where they can find that. Yeah, first and foremost, I'm most active on Instagram, so you can find me at. N-I-K-K-A underscore underscore T because they keep booting me. Um, so there's two underscores there. Nicotee on Instagram. Um, we also have a, quite a few business pages on Instagram. Essential Extracts LLC. Essential Extracts California. Essential Extracts Missouri is just being built out right now. And you can follow um, the entire build out on Instagram at Essential Extracts Missouri as we speak. I just posted yesterday the dirt. Um, but we've already put a structure up. I'm just starting to tease it. Um, we're literally just finalizing all of the water barrier and insulation for my structure. This is a really state-of-the-art facility that I'm building in Missouri. It's going to have full temperature and humidity control out in the middle of nowhere, and we're building it from the dirt up. Um, so I'm really proud of it. It's going to be 8,000-plus square feet. It's going to have everything from my solventless lab to two C1D1 rooms to ethanol to uh, edible kitchen, um, not all of which will be under essential extracts. I have some other brands that we're about to be launching. Um, so you can find us there. Um, I'm also about to be uh, launching something in the hemp world. So stay tuned for that. I'm not even going to talk too much more about it, but I've been working on that project for two years. So watch my Instagram. You can also check us out on our websites, essentialextracts.ca, essentialextracts.co, and I believe Essential Extracts Missouri is about to be up and running in the next couple of weeks here. Um, just been staying busy, staying on my grind, 
doing a lot of R&D since Corona hit. I've been kind of blessed to come back to my Colorado house for a little bit and just do a lot of pheno hunting. I'm always trying to find that next cultivar that's going to taste different, unique, that I'm going to love, that's also going to be viable. Um, so you can follow some of my works on the Instagram. Facebook, um, I believe it's DJ Nicotee or Nick Tanum. You should be able to find me. Um, I'm pretty out there and available. Uh, Twitter is extract artist. And, uh, yes, as you mentioned, we do offer consulting. We've really kind of moved into, uh, a format that couples consulting with licensing deals. Um, I've done a lot of consulting in the industry. I've helped a lot of brands launch. I've taught a ton of the companies, uh, that some people would say compete with me in the space. Um, and I'm not opposed to doing that. I will always continue to teach people how to make this product. Um, but we're really more focused on teaching people that are continuing, that are going to bear our brand name and keep that quality standard alive. Um, that's what we're doing in Missouri. I have a few projects in California. And uh, as we move, I'm always looking for more. Yeah. You're also involved with the amazing project uh, called Gangier. Uh, maybe you just tell me a little bit about that. That's, that sounds phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, the Gongier. Um, and I've been working on that project for two plus years now as well. There's a huge board of members and amazing group of people, uh, that I've been working on that project with. It's headed up by Greenflower Media and Derek and Max have been amazing. Um, they've really provided the professional platform that I was looking to, get my teachings and quality standards out there. And really, I can't talk too much more about it. I just uh, urge people to go to thegongier.com and click the link that says you're interested. And we'll be sending out a lot more information via that avenue. Um, but the one thing I, I do want to mention is the thing that the industry has been lacking is quality standards and a way to really assess the cannabis, the flowers, the extracts, the edibles. And that's something that we're hoping to uh, fulfill with this program. The Gongier is um, really creating quality standards. Awesome. Awesome. And that's G-A-N-J-I-E-R.com. Um, really been a pleasure having you on the show. And thank you for all your contributions to uh, the extract arts, to uh, reggae music and uh just the enjoyment of the healing flower. Right on, y'all. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to see both you guys. Mike G, Danny Danko, much love and respect, family. <laughs> All right. Peace out. We will be back with more Grow Bud Yourself. All right. Welcome back. Welcome back. That was a great interview there with nicotine what what a wealth of knowledge uh about hashish and and cannabis terpenes everything yeah absolutely first of all anybody who kind of has been taken under the wing of mila deserves instant respect so amazing and and, and nicotine is amazing as well so it's been our privilege to get to work with him over the years and uh, judge his uh, extracts and um and even even listen to him dj at some of our cups that's right he's he's been on stage djing award shows and and performed many times so it's pretty awesome uh, definitely a, a renaissance man <laughs> yes he is <laughs> absolutely okay we are now in the cultivation segment and uh, it is a fortnight, which of course means it is time for Dan's strain of the fortnight. <laughs> what do you have for us this week? Uh, this week is a great strain. Uh, this one is called Sunshine Number no. Four, uh, which is also the name of so a soil mix, which is interesting. But uh, this—it's from Bodhi Seeds—is uh, the breeder uh, Bodhi Seeds, which is you know people who really know their their cannabis know their Bodhi Seeds uh, genetics. Um, it won first place hybrid flower uh, at our Michigan Cannabis Cup in 2015, uh, and at that time was also lab tested um, by a couple of different labs, actually Iron Labs and PSI in, in Michigan, uh, and ended up being like over 27% THC. So it definitely put it, put, put it on the radar 
Um, and the flavor is just outstanding. It's a cousin of the popular Girl Scout cookies strain. Um, so its lineage, lineage is very similar to Girl Scout cookies, um, but it has added genetics in the form of pink panties, uh, which is an OG crossed with Burma. Um, so that makes the lineage of this, uh, according to my colleague, uh, Nico Escondido, OG Kush times cherry pie times pink panties, uh, which <laughs> immediately sounds, sounds amazing. Uh, <laughs> um, it does indeed. Yes. Right. <laughs> cherry pie and pink panties. Mm-hmm. Um, so the terpene, uh, flavor is just ridiculous. Uh, there's a lot of, um, a lot of flavor here. The total terp count in general was 2.2%, which doesn't sound like much, uh, but actually is a lot for uh, terpenoids. Uh, Because we were able to have it tested, we found that uh, the myrcene levels were ridiculous. 8.32 mg per g uh, milligrams per gram. Limonene was 5.9 mg per g and pinene 1.6. So really uh really terpy and that's why it ended up being uh one of nico's best tasting buds on earth as well um so shout out to the sunshine number four uh bodhi seeds and nico for uh really quantifying that and this is one of those ones that has tremendous amount of thc but also great flavor and so uh it's really the one-two punch sunshine number four all right Sounds awesome. It also sounds a little bit like um, like acid. Was there an acid with a similar name? Uh, Orange Sunshine, I think, oh, right? Orange. Is that what I'm thinking of? Brotherhood of uh, Eternal right, Love. Right, exactly. Mm. Yes. Yes. Well, thank you for the strain of the Fortnite. Uh, very good stuff. And um, our listeners know that each week during the Cultivation segment, Dan talks a little bit extensively about a grow topic that will help you become a better grower. So what would you like to talk about this week? Yes. Uh, this week, I'd like to talk about pheno hunting. So pheno hunting uh, is something you probably hear a lot. Uh, it has to do with uh, breeding. But first, uh, you need to know what a phenotype is. So a phenotype is basically a plant's observable expression of its genetic material within its environment. Um, so not to be confused with genotype, which is the actual genetic material. So what that means is if you plant a seed, let's say you get 10 seeds, um, from the same plant and the same cross, each of those seeds is going to behave slightly differently. And those are the different phenotypes, uh, phenotypical expressions there going on. So it's just like, uh, you know, brothers and sisters share the exact same genetics and parentage but are, are different uh, in different ways. So as a breeder, uh, when you're growing those out, you're looking for the desirable traits. Um, so pheno hunting is basically growing out seeds um, from a particular cross and then basically choosing the ones you like the most uh, to continue to breed with. And um, really, you know, the larger the population that you plant, so if you plant, you know, 10 seeds, you're not going to have a wide variety of phenotypes to choose from. Uh, But if you plant 10,000 seeds uh, and you have a huge, large population like that, then you're really getting somewhere because you're going to have those sort of outliers that really express exactly what you're looking for. And what you're looking for has changed over the years. I mean, we've talked about this on the show, but, um, you know, when I got started growing, um, everybody wanted fast growing indicas that, you know, stayed short and stocky and got, you know, finished in 45 or 50 days with beautiful bag appeal. You know, that was what we wanted in, you know, in the early nineties and things like that. And, you know, uh, you know, because of prohibition, because of, you know, a number of different factors, that's, you know, those were the desirable traits, but over time that's changed. And now you see that like, you know, what's desirable has changed. It's more about the flavors. It's more about, uh, you know, resin production, trichome gland heads. It's more about surface area. So even those dense nugs that we wanted back in the 90s, people don't want that anymore because you're going to be stripping the essential oil off of those buds. So desirable traits are really whatever the grower or the breeder 
is interested in perpetuating to the next generation. Now, those traits can skip generations. So, you know, there's also that. So they're passed down from the grandparent. Um, so that's why, you know, you're able to see different sort of what looks like two different strains popping from the same batch of seeds. Those are all different phenotypes that are being expressed. So when you hear breeders talk about, oh, this is the grapefruit pheno, or this is the, the you know, orange aid pheno, whatever it is, that means that that's, you know, out of that, those batches of seeds, those are the ones that express those particular traits. So, um, like I said, you're looking for the ones you love and you're looking to breed with those, but, uh, you know, it takes many generations to really stabilize. So when you're talking about something that's more stable, then those seeds will behave uh, more uniformly. They'll still have different phenotypes, but they won't be widely spread, spread out like that first uh, filial cross, the F1. So these are sort of, um, you know, start, you start breeding projects with what your goal is in mind. You want to know what your desirable traits are, what traits you're trying to breed out of some, you know, out, out of something, and then act accordingly and take amazing notes as well, because, uh, you know, the best breeders really know exactly what they're looking for and exactly what they've found in the past and how to replicate um, the same thing in the future with different genetics in order to sort of stabilize and find something new and fresh. Um, so there you have it. I mean, that's pheno hunting in a nutshell. Very good. And yes, write stuff down. Do it. It's going to help you in the long run. So thank you for that. Grow tip pheno hunting, a very interesting topic that I'm sure we could do an entire show about, but that was a good little uh, intro. And so now uh, let's move on to our grow Q&A section. And uh, if you have a question that you would like answered on the show, get in touch with us. Uh, you could email us. That is info at growbudyourself.com. We also have uh, the new website, just growbudyourself.com. Uh, you can get in touch with us that way. Find us on social media, lots of ways. What do you say we hop right in here? Let's do it. First up is Matthew, and he writes, uh, I'm starting a new tent grow. Instead of going with an expensive online HVAC, uh, I found an all-in-one 14,000 BTU AC slash heater slash dehumidifier slash carbon filter slash fan with dual hoses. I'm wondering if this will be enough if I'm running four HGL 600 V2 R spec full spectrum 600 watt quantum board LED grow lights. Wow, <laughs> that's a also mouthful. with this. Uh, yeah, it's a lot there. Uh, also with this setup, what do you think my yield would be? I'm used to outdoor growing but uh, I've only been growing indoors a few months now. So what would you say to Matthew? Uh, yeah, I think that uh, the 14,000 BTU uh, unit will be enough for you, especially because the 600 watts, uh, the four 600 watt lights are uh, LEDs. So, you know, you're not going to have a ton of heat. If those were, uh, you know, high pressure sodium or metal halides, uh, you might have an issue, but with LEDs, you, I think you'll be okay with the 14,000. Um, as far as what your setup will yield, that's, you know, that's hard to really, um, decide. Although, you know, a good, you know, a good yield is a, a half a gram to a gram per watt is a very good yield. Um, so in that case, you know, you're talking about 2,400 grams, uh, but that's, you know, that's really uh, dependent on a lot of other factors. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, like I said, that unit should be perfect, especially because it does handle uh, air conditioning, heat, dehumidification, and carbon filtration. I think um, that's nice to have all that in one, in one unit with two hoses. So, uh, yeah, report back to us. Let us know uh, if that's enough and what your yield is. All right. Yes, please do let us know, Matthew, and thanks for uh, writing. So let's move on to Facebook here. And uh, we have uh, Sativa Steve who writes, Hey, guys. Uh, first off, I want to thank you for your podcast. I listen to multiple episodes a day. It's great info for real. Nice. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, my question to you is about pruning. If you are already in your second week of flower, but there's a bunch of fan leaf still blocking the light from some of the lower buds, 
Should I just leave them or are they okay to prune? Also, I usually just do the apply slight pressure at the base method for removing fan leaves. Is this wrong to do? As I try and do everything by hand and only use scissors uh, to be extremely precise. So thanks again for the podcast. What would you say, Dan, to uh, Sativa Steve? Yes. Um, as far as removing fan leaves, I would be very selective about it. Uh, you have to consider that the fan leaf is the factory that's you know, pumping, you know, light energy into your flower. So, you know, if you have one, a big, huge fan leaf uh, low on the plant, that's, uh, that's blocking, you know, another, a top that could be filling out. That's a, that's one you could, you could take off. Um, I, I prefer tucking them under, like there's a certain way that you can just um, kind of, like you said, apply slight pressure, but you kind of tuck the leaf under, um, you know, another kind of, you know, branch or whatever you can find to sort of tuck it under and that way um you sort of get it out of the way but keep it on the plant um some people take off a lot of the lower leaves uh just to allow some airflow uh to flow through underneath their plants uh particularly in places that have a lot of powdery mildew um as far as like removing fan leaves using pressure i you know i prefer to use if not scissors or nice nice actual trimmers um, you know, either razor blade, something very sharp. Um, you know, if you're using scissors, even that sometimes you're creating kind of these wounds, you know, at, on the plant. So, you know, like I said, I prefer sort of tucking the, the leaves under and tucking them in to different places. Uh, but if that, you can't accomplish that, just be very selective about, uh, which ones you take off. Because like I said, a lot of them, some of them need to stay on there. Yeah, okay. Makes sense. Thank you, Sativa Steve. And uh, let's move on to this next question that came to us uh, anonymously. Hey, Danny and Mike. First, thanks so much for what you do. Uh, I've thrown a few pot plants out by my vegetable garden here and there with little maintenance, but I am just now doing my first indoor grow and my first serious grow in general. As a new grower, having you as a resource is an amazing thing. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. thanks. I'm assuming he means me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my question is, I'm running Spider Farms 2000 LEDs now with success after getting burnt on some Chinese blurples initially. Uh, do you think it would be beneficial to supplement extra blue light from some Chinese blurples during the last week or two of veg and first couple weeks of flower to decrease nodal spacing? So, so what do you think? Okay, uh, well first off, I'm not quite sure what you mean by blurple, but... Uh... I'm assuming that you mean like a, a knockoff or a, a poor LED uh, light product. Um, so the answer to the question is uh, it can't hurt. You know what I mean? Like uh, supplementing extra blue light uh, during that last week of veg and yeah, to decrease nodal spacing first couple weeks of flower. Uh, it, it can't hurt. I mean, it certainly will help uh, to, to keep your plants um short and nice and tight and uh if you got them already there on hand why not plug them in and, and put them to work they're not really taking a ton of electricity um but they certainly could benefit your plants uh in the long run and the short run so yeah keep those blurples lit keep them blurping <laughs> okay uh so yes i think we have time for one more here right yeah let's do it okay um, this is our friend Jonathan, and uh, it's a little bit of a lengthy um, question, but let's just dive right in. Uh, hi guys, I'm a long-time uh, listener and a long-time grower. I was wondering if you have any experience growing with the gas lantern method, or if you're even familiar with it. Uh, if you're not familiar, here is the rundown. During veg, you run the lights at 12 hours on, 12 hours off, with an hour of light smack dab in the middle of the dark cycle. So, for example, on at 8 a.m., off at 8 p.m., on at 1.30 a.m., and then off at 2.30 a.m. This may seem counterintuitive, but the, plant, uh, but the plant does not go into flower until you remove the hour of light in the middle of the dark cycle. This saves a lot of energy because your, uh, your lights are on 13 hours a day as opposed to 18 hours a day. Another argument in favor of this method is that the plants build up a flowering hormone while remaining in the veg state, 
And when you take out the hour of light, the plants seem to jump vigorously into the flowering stage. Another part of this method involves the flowering stage. So for the first two weeks, you run 12 hours on, 12 hours off. Starting on the third week, you reduce the on time by a half hour a day. Uh, this time reduction happens each following week until you hit 9 hours on, 15 hours off. So again, for example, uh, first two weeks on at 8 a.m., off at 8 p.m., the third week on at 8.15 a.m., and then off at 7.45 p.m., etc. The idea is that this mimics the shortening of daylight in the autumn. I've had great results with this method. I've saved a bunch of energy, too. Also, I have never had a plant go hermy on me with this method, ever. It's always been smooth sailing. Uh, thanks for the awesome show. Even though I've been growing for some time, I still find much value in your podcast. I'm very grateful. So what what would you say to Jonathan and his uh, gas lantern method? Yeah, um, I have heard of it. It, it, it. It's interesting, you know, and and it certainly does save energy. Um, but the thing that it also does is it deprives your plants of light. So if they're only getting 13 hours a day during the veg stage, um, sure, they're going to stay in the veg stage. But you're losing, you know, five hours or more of light to the plant. And, you know, that's as, as important to the plant as food and water, uh, in particularly during the veg stage as you're trying to build the plant up. So while, you know, it certainly won't, you know, start, it won't make the plant flower. This is a technique that people use uh, when they do uh, light supplementation in greenhouses and stuff instead of light deprivation, which we talked about, there's light supplementation, um, in a place like Colombia, for instance, if you're so close to the equator, uh, and you're growing plants that don't want to, uh, that just automatically want to flower, they're in a, almost like an all, a, a constant 12, 12. So you can't grow big, big trees in Jamaica or in Colombia, um, without doing this sort of thing where you interrupt the nighttime with some light and then the plant stays in the veg stage. So in that instance, it makes sense. Um, and I think that's probably why they call it the gas lantern method because it's done, uh, with outdoor plants doing it indoors is really just depriving your plants of five hours of light per day. So if you really need to save money, uh, on power, I guess it makes a little bit of sense, but it's also going to affect your yield for sure. Now, as far as the flowering, uh, reducing those hours, it's the same thing. The plant is going to continue to flower at 12, 12, 12 on, 12 off. Um, DJ Short likes to do, you know, 11 and 13. Um, but once you get down to nine hours on, 12, 15 hours off, you're really depriving your plant of, uh, you know, an extra three hours of light per day. And light is so important to plant growth that depriving the plant of light is going to affect your yield in the end. So um, I'm definitely interested in hearing more about it. Um, if you feel like it's not affecting your yield at all, uh, I'd like to hear, you know, how that's possible or, or, or you know, what the uh, reasoning behind that is. Uh, but, it, you know, like I said, it's a, it is a great method when you're trying to get outdoor or greenhouse plants to stay in the vegetative stage when they're only getting 12 or 13 hours of light per day. But uh, if you're growing indoors under lights, um, I think it behooves you to give the plants as much light as you possibly can, uh, as long as they have a little bit of a dark cycle to recover from taking in all that light. So I recommend 18 or 20 hours a day uh, during the veg stage and 12 hours on, 12 hours off for flowering. Okay, very good. I, I have to say, oh, you got something else? No, I just want to say thank you for, you know, bringing it up and, and um, you know, offering up a, a different system. And, and, you know, we're happy to hear and talk about it for talk about it more. Yeah, I have to say, uh, Jonathan has had some pretty interesting stuff to run by us. Uh, he, he brought up the chloramine uh, issue previously. That's right. Um, yeah. And uh, he also came out in favor of urinating on your plants in a pinch and that it can be done. And now the gas lantern method. So keep the ideas coming. We appreciate it. We appreciate everybody who wrote in. And uh, as always, if you have a question you would like answered on this show, email us. That is info at growbudyourself.com. Go to our website, growbudyourself.com. Learn more about YouTube and Patreon and socials, etc. Uh, we are going to take a little break, but when we come back, we're going to wrap it up. Yes, we'll be back with more Grow Bud Yourself. Mm -hmm. 
All right, we are back, and I hope you guys enjoyed episode number 29 as much as I did. Uh, thank you, to, as always, to Jacques and Winstrong. Thank you to Nick T for the incredible interview. Uh, very insightful on the hashish tip. Um, thank you to Vapor.com. Remember, uh, GBY gets you 15% off of anything at Vapor.com. Yes, that includes the new Puff P- Puffco Peak Pro. Um, thank you to Excelsior Extracts, as always. Check out their uh, amazing THC-infused pain relief rub. And uh, thank you to Mike G, the greatest producer and co-host ever. And yeah, you guys, check out our website, growbudyourself.com. Uh, it's brand new. It's got uh, a place there where you can sign up for our newsletter. And that way you will be able to keep up with all our episodes and everything that's happening. Check us out on patreon.com slash Danny Danko. Uh, if you want to support the show and get some exclusive content, you can do it there. Um, we just passed 42 Patreons. So I'm going to be giving away a magical butter machine. Although the rules on Patreon are very weird about giveaways. So we'll have to do that clandestinely, but someone's getting a magical butter machine. We're going to make it happen. Yeah, absolutely. And and one of our Patreons will get that magical butter machine. And, you know, hopefully you will be one of our Patreons as well. If you're not already, because it's a great give out more. So keep joining. I have uh, a bunch of different uh, vaporizer products and all kinds of, giveaway stuff so sign up for the newsletter that's a great way to get involved um go to patreon.com go to growbudyourself.com um you know follow us on all the social medias tag us in your posts uh let people know you enjoy grow but growing bud yourself and uh that's how you earn your free weed right (laughs) all right i think you know episode number 29 has been a great one i think let's say we tie it up with a bow wrap it up and put it in the books (laughs) 